organisations from Capita. Hello and welcome to Tomorrow's Organisations. I'm Fiona Phillips and this time we're looking at how military training can help shape the future of learning. We're at the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst, I'm very pleased to say, and joining me are Major General Paul Nansen, Commandant here, and General Officer Commanding Recruiting and Initial Training Command too. Quite a few jobs you've got on your hands there, Paul. Hi, nice to meet you. Hello, Fiona. And also joining us, Kath Possumai, CEO, Recruiting Group, British Army. Hi to you, Kath. Hello. Paul, um, if you could set the scene for us then. We're here at Sandhurst. What, what goes on here generally? Sandhurst is the home of the British Army officer. So we train, educate the next generation of, of leader. We'd run two courses here, a long course for regular officers, which goes on 44 weeks and a short course, eight weeks, for reserve officers, um, professionally qualified officers, doctors, dentists. So in those two courses, we, we develop them and turn them into soldiers first, then officers, and then obviously, finally, leaders. How does Capita and the Army work together then? How do you, how do you collaborate? So in terms of kind of the mechanics of the structure, we, we have a 10-year contract. We're responsible for everything from uh, the advertising right through to the point at which um, a soldier officer enters ba- basic training. Um, but it's a it's a partnership. So I am responsible for a team that involves about 900 civilians and about 500 military who get rotated into recruiting group, as we're called in the army, for, for a period of a couple of years. Um, but I, the recruiting group team is nestled within Paul's wider command. So we work really, really closely with the training establishments. Uh, and Paul and I work really, really closely to make sure that the teams collaborate effectively and that we leverage the best of civilian expertise and military expertise to get what we need. What challenges do you face, Paul, with modernising training and delivery? Well, I think we've got to make sure that training keeps up with the generation coming in, in terms of how they want to learn. Um, you know, we, the most off-last question I get is, is this generation of youngsters coming through as good as generations gone before? And of course they are every bit as good, if, if some, sometimes they're even better. But they are different, and we sometimes forget that at our peril. So just assuming that you can teach them the same way as I was taught when I came here, you know, 30 years ago is, is wrong. So we're constantly evolving, you know, the way, the way we, we, we teach them and educate them and, and develop them more importantly. It's more about development nowadays, nurturing. Um, and so, for example, blended learning now, using technology far more than we did in the past, is hugely important with this generation coming through. What do you both gain from your collaboration, from, from training and recruitment all under one umbrella? I think it's really interesting, actually, because I think a lot of commercial organisations really haven't cracked joining up recruiting and learning very effectively, whereas we have. We, we've certainly got lessons, I think, that are transferable. I mean, corporate organisations, typically recruiting is done by one team, learning development is done by another team. And the recruiting organisation gathers loads and loads of information during the recruiting process on people and then it never it never translates into what learning and development that individual might need. They start all over again once a com- person joins a company. What we've worked really hard to do is make sure that the information we collect in the recruiting process gets handed across to the training teams. Um, and actually the training teams reach back and make contact with the recruits before they even start training so that they've got that connection already and they're starting to talk to them um, and that makes that really helps uh, more of an individualized approach so 
you know, you've got a platoon of young recruits. They're not all the same. They're not all, therefore, need to be treated the same. And that kind of exchange of information and flow means that the training establishments understand which of the recruits need an arm around them for the first couple of weeks um, versus the ones that can probably stand to be shouted at a bit more. If you're in the recruitment business, you've got to understand what a lived experience is going to be like and, and translate that back into recruiting experience. And unless you can match the two together, you're going to fail because they see through that very quickly. You know, if you're not offering, if you're not delivering what you've offered, then they'll walk. And of course, you know, one of the things we've got to do is try and keep them in training. Um, you know, and that's making them stick is, is, is a huge part of, of what we do. OK, well, thank you both very much for the moment. Uh, next, we'll be talking about the changing world of skills. Kath, uh, we've already discussed on our podcasts how skills and training are evolving at a really rapid rate. And that must also be the case with the army, I would imagine. What are you seeing, in fact, in terms of changing skill requirements? I mean, one of the obvious areas that is going to be growing and we know will be growing is cyber and cyber skills. Um, and so we are thinking about how we identify and access more cyber aptitude and cyber skills. And it's something we already do for one area um, of the army and actually you don't need to be physically or medically 100% to be useful and helpful in the cyber area so that's definitely I think uh, an area that will be uh, will be focused for years to come. Okay and Paul is, is the army changing its approach to learning do you think? Yes I think this I, I bring out two things that we've just brought into to training which may surprise people but uh, one is emotional intelligence teaching people about emotional intelligence how do you how do you uh, Build relationships, deal with deal with emotion, perhaps a bit more. But for example, standing on your two feet and presenting in front of a group of people is not something that comes naturally to a lot of youngsters nowadays. You've got to teach them how to do that. So that's the first thing. And the second thing, which is new, which people expect us to be good at, but we're not as good as we are, is, is resilience, and particularly mental resilience, how to look after yourself. And you know, it's been very public now about the, the you know, mental pressures we, we suffer, particularly when we go on operations and face some pretty tricky situations how do we deal with that well you've got to deal with it yourself you've got to have the the strength to be able to uh, to, to to combat that and, and and you can't just assume it you've got to teach them let me ask you both technology the t word um in the wider world and of course in the army well moves very quickly so what sort of organizations would you learn from Kath? There, there are there are lots of organisations that do it really. I think, I think some of the tech companies are because they're in the right space are better at adopting it faster. And one of the th- I think one of the real practical challenges of adapting to the pace of technology change in training or in any context um, organisationally is exactly that. It's the pace of technology change because by the time you identify uh, you know, a new product that you want to bring in to adopt. And you've made that decision and you're going to invest thousands of pounds, sometimes millions of pounds in it. Then you worry because the next product will be coming along two months later, six months later. So do you wait? Do you wait for the next technological innovation? And sometimes that that paralysis is really difficult for organizations to understand where they're going to spend their money and are they going to do it the most wisely? Um, and you know, particularly, I think, in the public sector where spending can be even more difficult because of procurement processes. You know, you're in a position where you make a decision on a product. You get that product three years down the line. It's obsolete. So part of the real challenge in adapting to technology is being able to select, buy, implement and adopt technology really, really, really rapidly. And I don't think there are many organisations that have got to to grips with that 
yet well. Paul, I wonder if you could give us a couple of examples of how technology is changing the way that your training works. Um, there must be quite a few, I would imagine. Yeah, I'll give you two examples. I'll give you one example from Sandhurst, and I'll give you one example from soldier training up in a place called Catrick, where we do our infantry training. So Sandhurst, technology in terms of leadership, how do you teach leadership? So when they, uh, when they arrive now, they get issued with their tablets, which they all get now, which is fine. But they use those tablets in different ways. But one of the key ways in terms of leadership is when they go out and do, do a leadership task, they do it by, by leading their friends, leading their fellow cadets. So they'll go out and say they do a patrol exercise. They'll, they'll, one of them will be the leader. He or she will lead the patrol. They'll then come back in. The rest of the patrol will then mark their leadership on their tablets. What went well, what they could have done better, where they may, may have failed in leadership. That information will then go to the the platoon commander who's responsible, the senior instructor, who will then debrief the individual based not only on his own personal insights, but also the insights from the team. So effectively getting 360 degree awareness of their leadership style right from the get-go, which I think is a huge step forward. I never had that, you know, that ability to check in on your own leadership style is hugely important. So my second example is, is, is uh, from Catrick, our infantry training centre, where um, one of the things we do in training is about... Um, understanding weapon systems. So the primary weapon system of an infantry soldier is, is the A3 assault rifle. And traditionally, when I was little, um, we would sit, sit around on polyprop chairs with an instructor who would have a rifle and he would go through the parts of the rifle, they would strip it down and we'd follow him and do that. Now, it's all on an app on your phone. So oh. the first time they strip a, a rifle is on a game, basically, on their phone. And they do it two or three times, four or five times. They play games in the lines at night, who can do it fastest, before they even see a live rifle. But that's the way, they, that's the way these lot learn. They learn from, you know, from, from, from doing technology and by, from gamification. OK, in our final section next, leadership. Tomorrow's organisations. So, Kath and Paul, um, what leadership skills do you think will be the most important in the future? Your recruitment... Mm-hmm. So perhaps you should start off. I think what we're, what we're looking at in generations to come is the need for the workforce to be more agile. Um, Recognising that the pace of change and the pace of technological change means that jobs are changing all the time. You know, there's there's some stats, you know, that well out in the public domain that most of the jobs that the kids of today are going to do haven't even been invented yet. So in terms of leadership skills, the ability to understand how to lead people through change, I think, is is the most critical leadership challenge facing facing leaders of the future. I think there's there's an enduring nature of leadership that um, that survives time, and I think it's important people understand that um, you know that ability to inspire your people is remains the same as it has done for hundreds of years, and that will never change. And we stress here at Santos, you know, get those basics right first. Upskilling. So I've you know I'm I'm these kids coming through now are IT gurus. I am an IT Luddite, but that's no excuse. I need to upskill myself so I can understand what they do um, and, and communicating. So I have a, a reverse mentor, we call it. So a young female officer who tells me how I should be communicating with this generation. Because I don't know, because I'm you know, for me, it's notebook and pencil. But for them, it's different. So constantly evolving how we lead. And I think that's the way we should approach the future. What examples of leadership, Kath, um, could benefit people in the wider business world? How could that army leadership model benefit I business? Think it's, I think it's really transferable. You know, working with Paul in the last couple of years, I've you know watched at first hand the army's director of leadership exhibit phenomenal leadership skills. Um, and I think one of the things that is 
they call mission command in the army. That's all about empowerment in, in our language. And our version of that is we call it in, in, in the army recruiting team is be your own CEO. And that stands for curiosity, empowerment and ownership. So we want people to take responsibility, to make decisions, to make changes, to improve their environment and their operation without waiting for direction or instructions or commands from above. Um, and the army have mission command, which is their version of that. But we also have that in, in the civilian world. So that's definitely something that's very, very transferable. Um, Paul, back to you. Now, amidst all of this, you've managed to write a book um, called Stand Up Straight, 10 Life Lessons from Sandhurst. So which key skills, I'd love to know this, key life skills from your time in the army resonate most elsewhere, do you think? Something that we could all pick up on. We have a phrase here we call take a knee, which is um, you know, just when, when, when you're in a difficult situation, particularly when you're in command of a difficult situation, you, you, you instinctively rush into a decision. You rush into, you think you have to do something quickly. We're always taught at Santa take a knee, just take two minutes to think through, you know, get, get, the, get the adrenaline under control, let, let your mates in the team deal with the current situation because you're the leader, you've got to think through to the finish. And I think that applies equally in, in civilian world. We could all deal with just taking a taking a knee every now and then. That's good advice. But in battle, can yeah, we in battle as well. Knee? No, we do. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as I say in the book, if you if you uh, if you read it, very reasonable rates at waterstones. <laughs> uh, but we talk we talk about sign copy, please. <laughs> several several instances in my in my uh, career where I'm I'm very glad I did take a knee and think through because uh, in one case, had I not, I would have. I would have uh, killed my own people because we were in a difficult position. Everyone was telling me that who was in front of me was the enemy, and in fact it was our own people. So I did take a knee, as my colour sergeant Sanders taught me, and just check on the radio to make sure who was there was actually there and turned out to be the right decision. Kath, um, is there any insight, do you think, from the Army Capita Partnership that can be applied to other companies? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think so. I, mean, I think it's been well publicised that, that both the Army and Capita got it pretty wrong in the early days of our partnership, sort of 2012 to, to 2017, 18. Um, um, but now we are getting it spectacularly right, you know, in achieving our targets. Um, and so I think, you know, the lesson is really, if you're going to go into partnership as organisations, partnership means partnership. And that's not just a contract you sign. Actually, it is in the behaviours that you adopt, the way you interact with one another, the efforts you make to understand each other's context, the the way you um, engage all of your people to make sure that they understand that it's a partnership and to help them understand how they partner with a very, you know, in our case, a very, very different culturally organisation. Um, and then really taking that forward in terms of uh, managing your external stakeholders as well, speaking with one voice. If you're a partnership, then you should have one voice, not two. Um, and that's something we got wrong in the early days. So I think there are absolutely lessons, um, several lessons um, from our experience of the last sort of eight, eight, nine years that could absolutely be, be taken for by other particularly public private sector partnerships. Yeah. So that's it for this edition here at Sandhurst in Berkshire. My thanks to Major General Paul Nansen and to Kath Possumai. Thanks very much, both of you. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely welcome. I'm Fiona Phillips. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to find out more, go to capita.com slash future of work and learning.